Hi, I'm Rose, and this is Meanwhile in the Future. As you may have deduced, Meanwhile in the Future is a podcast about the future. Every week we explore a potential future scenario and what might happen should that future come true. Every episode we start with a little field trip into the future. And then we stop saying future for a little while. So let's start our field trip now. Today we're going to start in the year 2016. Are you going to Matinka's talk tomorrow? Probably not. I never know what he's talking about. What is that? I don't know. I've never heard that sound before. Did we break the telescope? Shit. Shit, shit, shit. Is anything flashing? Where is it coming from? I don't know. We should probably call someone. We interrupt this program to bring you an emergency update. Scientists at the Kamioka Observatory in Japan have detected a burst of neutrinos, which might indicate a nearby supernova. Officials are urging residents to go inside and close the blinds, stay away from windows, do not leave your homes until word has been given. The National Guard and local police and fire departments have been mobilized to encourage people on the street to return to their homes. Please return to your homes. Stay inside. Supernova can cause burns and severe skin damage. I repeat, return to your homes. So this week is another installment in our series of ways in which space could kill us all. This time, it's a supernova that has gone off nearby. The idea for this episode was actually proposed by Katie Mack, and she also happens to be the right person to talk to about it. I am a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Melbourne. I'm an astrophysicist. I don't know. I might, I might be a cosmologist. It depends on, <laughs> on how you want to define me. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, you can, I'm an astrophysicist. That's, that's good enough. But before we get into all the ways that a supernova would be really terrible for us, let's back up and talk about what a supernova actually is. There are sort of two kinds of supernovae that happen that we know about. I mean, there's more than two, but there are two basic kinds. One is when you have a very massive star and it uses up all its fuel. So it, our star, our sun, is converting hydrogen into helium and you know, eventually it'll run out of hydrogen and it'll start to convert some other elements. But at some point, if you have a really massive star, it'll keep converting elements to higher and higher um, masses until it gets to iron and it can't convert iron into anything. And so once that happens, it has no more fuel, it can't burn anymore, and the whole star kind of collapses on itself. And when it does that, it explodes fantastically. And that's called a core collapse supernova. The other kind is where you have a binary system, and one of your stars is a white dwarf, and the other one is a a massive star, and the binary system is close enough that the white dwarf is pulling material off of the other star, and it can get so much material onto it that it has this massive thermonuclear explosion, and that's a a different kind of supernova. Now, on the scale of the universe, supernova happen all the time. In our galaxy, our supernova rate is about one every 50 years or so. That might sound like a lot, but in order for a supernova to really impact us here on Earth, it has to be close by. In order to hurt us, it would have to be within about 100 light years. If it's around 50 light years, it'll definitely hurt us. 
depend beyond that, it, you know, it'll hurt us to various levels. There aren't any stars that are at risk of blowing up close enough to impact us. So for now, we're safe. But what if there were? What would happen? Max says that the first thing we would notice actually wouldn't be light. So probably the first people to know would be in a mine a kilometer under a mountain in Japan. If it's near enough, it's a, if it's a near enough supernova, we'll probably get a neutrino signal first. And this is kind of an interesting story. Like, so it turns out that, okay, nothing travels faster than light. So you would think that the light would get here first and it would just fry us, right? But actually it turns out that within the, in the context of supernovae, neutrinos have a head start. And the reason they have a head start is because when the star collapses, the neutrinos are sort of produced in that collapse. And neutrinos are such, they're, they're such weakly interacting particles that they don't notice the star around them. Once they're created, they just fly out um, at top speed. But the light gets trapped inside because you're in this sort of fireball and the light's bouncing around um, within this fireball, uh, bouncing around off of ions and stuff like that. So the, super, the neutrinos actually have a bit of a head start because they can, they can start moving as soon as the explosion happens. This has happened in the past, too. Um, this was in 1987. The, the, the supernova is called Supernova 1987A. And in that case, um, we got a neutrino spike in, the, uh, in, a, in an experiment called Kamiokande. It's a neutrino detector. And then shortly after that neutrino spike, we, we saw the, the supernova light. The Super Kamiokande neutrino detector does have a neutrino alarm, uh, is a, a supernova alarm. And I know this because I used to work at Super Kamiokande, and I was terrified of the idea that there would be a supernova going off that would trigger this supernova alarm and I would have to do something to the detector and I would probably screw it up and lose all the data. That 1987A supernova was 168,000 light years away, which is way further than the possible nearby supernova that we're talking about right now. In 1987, the neutrinos got to Earth between two and three hours before the light did. So if a supernova went off much closer to us, we'd get the neutrinos in a matter of seconds. And depending on how far away the supernova is, that might give us a warning of anywhere from minutes to hours. Uh, but realistically, you know, if, if, if you're working at a neutrino detector in Japan or, or someplace on Earth, and you notice suddenly uh, several thousand or, or more neutrino events happening all at once, uh, by the time you can get the word out and let people know that something's going on, at that point, you know, it's already too late. The light from this thing will already be reaching the Earth as well. That's Phil Plate, an astronomer and science communicator who writes the Bad Astronomy blog for Slate.com and is also the writer and host of Crash Course Astronomy. When I first imagined a supernova going off nearby, I was picturing a giant white flash enveloping the whole sky and maybe setting some stuff on fire. Plate says that's not really how it would look. If you happen to be looking in the right part of the sky, you'll see a bright flash that might last for a few seconds or something like that, and then it'll go away. And then over the next few hours, days, uh, maybe even a couple of weeks, this uh, star basically will just get brighter and brighter and brighter until it reaches its peak brightness, and then it will fade again over time, over the next few months. Um, so it's not like you're going to look up and get set on fire or blinded or something like that. It's, it's just going to be a point of light in the sky. Uh, just a little pinprick in the sky, but it's going to be intensely bright. It's going to be like somebody shining a laser beam at you. And that light would probably mess with some stuff on Earth, like animals that are nocturnal and maybe even human sleep cycles. But in the grand scheme of things, that's really a tiny concern. More importantly, things like our satellites are totally fried. Uh, you're talking about an amount of extra high-energy light 
coming from a supernova, like a very, very, very large solar flare. Now, those don't penetrate our atmosphere. Our, our air absorbs those, which is you know great. That saves us from that. But uh, there are complicated physical effects on things like satellites. They can toast our satellites, just cook them, so that they just shut down unless they're specifically designed to withstand that sort of onslaught. Some military satellites are because, of course, the military is worried about somebody detonating a nuclear bomb out in space. Uh, so the military satellites might still work, but our communication satellites would be down, weather satellites, all that kind of stuff. They'd be gone. And the astronauts in the space station? They're in trouble. If you're an astronaut on the space station, yeah, you're basically screwed. The, the, the gamma rays, the x-rays, the ultraviolet from the supernova, those are going to come in and basically just uh, slam into the metal and the glass of the space station and just pass, basically pass right through. At least the x-rays and the gamma rays will. So they, uh, they could get an elevated or even lethal dose of this radiation. There's just not much we can do about that. And here on Earth, things are not great either. You're talking about um, a supernova that produces a lot of ultraviolet light. If it's close enough, it can easily match or outpace the amount of ultraviolet light that the sun puts out. You're hugely increasing um, the, gra the ground level radiation. You're increasing um, cosmic rays, which also can possibly cause more cancer and more mutations because those cosmic, cosmic rays can mess up your DNA. Just the same way that it's not a good idea to spend a lot of time in outer space unprotected from, um, from the radiation of outer space. People in sort of, uh, I don't know, radiation suits um, would, would probably be all right, but for a short time. And the blast would wreck our atmosphere in a couple of different ways that would stay with us after the supernova is long gone. The, uh, the hydrogen light can actually create a chemical reaction in our atmosphere. This is called a photochemical reaction, chemical reaction generated by light. Um, it creates like nitrous oxide, which is a, or nitric oxide. It's one of the two. Um, I'm an astronomer, not a chemistry, Jim. It's nitrous oxide. But it, it, uh, it, it, it's a, basically smog. It's a thick, opaque, noxious gas. And if enough of that is made, um, it can actually block sunlight. Uh, that, that would also be bad. Also, uh, this can wipe out the ozone layer. And that ozone layer is what absorbs that ultraviolet light from the sun and protects us here on Earth. You wipe that out, uh, a lot of that ultraviolet light can get through. So now you're talking about skin problems and all that. You're also talking about uh, uh, ocean life. Things that live near the surface of the ocean can get killed by that. Plants can get killed by that. So this is the real problem, that the UV light would would mess up the, the ozone layer. And we really need the ozone layer. Um, so it would make it, it would certainly make it unsafe to go outside if you screw up the ozone layer, but um, it also just bathes the earth in radiation that we really don't know how to deal with. So you are radiating uh, the oceans and the, that radiation can mess up the plankton in the oceans and that plankton in the oceans is most of what gives us oxygen, right? So like... Most of the oxygen that we use on Earth doesn't come from the forests. It comes from the plankton in the oceans. And if you're, if you're destroying that with this high dose of radiation that's no longer stopped by the ozone layer, then you can, you can easily screw up your main sort of oxygen reservoir. And that's a problem. 
And you're, you're basically kicking the legs out from the bottom of the food chain. The good news in all of this is that, like I said, there's no star close enough to us to do this kind of damage that is anywhere near going Super Saiyan anytime soon. But that doesn't mean that a nearby supernova couldn't happen. Now, it turns out, even though the, the, the massive luminous stars would be hard to, to escape our notice, these lower mass stars, like the ones that are um, the, the, the kind of stars like the sun that blow off their outer layers and then you just get the dense, hot core, if that thing is, is stealing material off of a nearby star, if it's orbiting another star, that stuff piles up and it can detonate like a stellar bomb. Um, those aren't, uh, aren't quite as bright and they're harder to detect. And it turns out there is one of these not that far away. There's a star called IK Pegasi. It's in the constellation of Pegasus, and it's about 150 light years away. And that's, that's close enough to me to go, huh, huh, that's closer than I'd like. The good news is um, it's, it's moving away from us. All the stars in the galaxy are orbiting the center of the galaxy. Some are moving toward us, some are moving away. And this, this star, I, IK uh, Peg, is moving away from us. And it's probably not going to blow up for about a million years. And if you look at its velocity away from us and multiply that times a million years, it turns out it's going to be more than a thousand light years away by the time this thing blows up. And I'm thinking, yeah, we're pretty safe from that. But the flip side of that is that, you know, there might be one a thousand light years away now that's moving toward us. And so when it blows up, it could be close enough to hurt us. But then again, you know, you got to look at the time scales here. That, that won't happen for a million years. So personally, I'm not losing any sleep over it. If you if you want like a, a sci-fi you know um, scenario in which it could happen, like there are stars that have significant velocities, um, and there could be one that comes from somewhere else and comes into our solar neighborhood and blows up. Like that's not inconceivable. Like we don't know of any right now, but like some stars are moving pretty fast. Really, though, we should probably be less worried about supernovae and more worried about things like meteors. They killed the dinosaurs, probably, and they could definitely kill us. Like, we're not even watching, like, we're not even really watching half the sky when it comes to meteors. We, we have monitors for nearby, like, near-Earth objects, um, but we're not even looking for in, in, like, half of the hemisphere of the sky because there was a survey in the southern hemisphere that got shut down. So, <laughs> like, we don't even have a good uh, handle on, on where the near-Earth objects might come from, and we know that those things exist and could, ha- could come to us. For more about which nearby stars you should be keeping a skeptical eye on, and for more in general about supernovae, head to gizmodo.com, where, as usual, we'll post links to more information. Meanwhile in the Future is produced by me, Rose Evelith, with the help of Annalie Newitz and the rest of the Gizmodo staff. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. Special thanks this week to Ben Lilly, Brian Lufkin, Leslie Horn, Darren Orff, and Brent Rose. Now that people know that I make this podcast everywhere I go, they want to talk to me about potential futures, which is awesome, and I love it. So you should keep them coming, in the comments, or on Twitter, or by email at overthinkingit at gizmodo.com. Don't be shy. I know you have crazy futures that you want to share, and I want to hear them. That's all for this week. Come back next week for another potential future.